Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Jane Kenway. Jane is an Emeritus Professor in Monash and Melbourne Universities. She's one of the best-known Australian academics working in the areas of sociology and policy of education. And over the past 30 years, Jane's work on feminism and education has been widely used, from her early work on education markets to her recent studies of elite schools and globalisation. All in all, Jane is an important voice in education research, so it was a pleasure to sit down and catch up with her. To kick off with, I was interested in exploring the big questions that Jane saw her work as addressing. My main interest historically, uh, from a biographical point of view, has always been class. And uh, the biography, I suppose, of my intellectual life has been, number one, I grew up in a family of books and readers. So we all lived and breathed books. Um, We also lived and breathed fierce debate, political debate in our household. And at the same time, uh, I grew up in families that were very conscious of of the pecking orders of the their histories of um, of living living in particular places in Australia, and where they were in the pecking order, and therefore how we were placed as a family in the pecking order, and so I was always very conscious of these issues, and um, or have always brought those questions to the table, and so first of all class. And my PhD was on, um, was on elite schools in Perth and uh, looking at questions of class and questions of gender. And uh, so the, the dominant forces there I was interested in were, were clearly the ruling classes of Western Australia, but also the ways in which the politics of elite schooling are caught up in the politics of the state. And when I say the state, I was talking, I'm talking about the national government um, but also the state historically because um, education was a state-based thing here. So I was interested in the ways in which class, policy and elite schools came together to serve particular sets of interests and how particular debates around safe funding for elite schools um, spoke into the sort of hegemonies of different sets of powerful interests. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing, though, I should say too is that... that you know, when I look back at, at that period of, of um, being really interested in gender and class, how remarkably absent was a focus on race. Yeah, yeah. And um, even though I'd been raised in, a, in country towns where there was a big Indigenous presence, both my parents were school teachers who worked very hard around Indigenous education and, and encouragement and support. It was not part of my analytical focus until um, I started. It wasn't part of my PhD. And so I went, when I went to Deakin and we were looking around the gender stuff, we were very keen to make sure that we looked at the intersections between gender, class, race, ethnicity, location, those sorts of things, so that we weren't, you know, th- so that that became part of the analytic. Yeah. It wasn't a, an absent I was going to say the whole push now towards intersectionality yes, is at least yes. for grounding. Yeah, that. and, and um, I've been doing a lot of work thinking about the concept of intersectionality and and the best 
and the ways in which it's developed as yeah. a concept and not just its roots in American black feminism, but also the ways in which it's travelled into different places and it can travel. So the ways in which you read intersectionality in India, yeah. for instance, cannot be the same as the ways you read it in the USA. So I've got quite interested in the idea of travelling theory and how our big theorists are able to travel to other places or can they? Yeah. And if they can't, or maybe they do only in part, and therefore what, what is missing? So, for example, we've looked at, I mean, a, a, a major theorist in elite studies, although it's, he's not one of our particular favourites, is Pierre Bourdieu. And one of the papers we did was looking at looking at can you take Pierre Bourdieu to Singapore? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what does that what does that mean? And what's missing out of Bourdieu? And so that's a really interesting question. And then thinking about any of those big concepts that we work with, what 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 is the implication of the conceptual apparatus we deploy? And then the bigger issues around not just colonialism, but capitalism, and if we're looking historically, civilizationism. Uh, what are those? What are the big implications of those meta themes for not just what's going on in particular locations and institutions, but the ways in which we think? How's the kind of move towards Southern theory and where it's kind yeah. of sort of emphasis on on that? Yes. I mean, that's a really interesting use of yes. theories from non-Western contexts. Yeah. I think it, it, it's a very interesting uh, direction of Connell's work and um, has been very influential and very well taken up yeah, uh, yeah. by people in, you know, the non-metropole. It, it has run in parallel to the work that um, we did here with a number of our, our students. And, it, and, this, and this was the Asia as method um, me, uh, approach. I, I've always been concerned about our international students coming here and being told, go and read Habermas yeah, yeah. or go and read Giddens or go and read whoever. Uh, but all often male, but but use almost always Western. Pale male and stale. Pale male, yeah, and often stale. Uh, uh, and so, when I was in Singapore for this other project we were doing, I um, I was in a bookshop and I saw this book Asia's Method. And I'm like, Fantastic! I'll take it back and we'll have a we'll just have a um, a reading group, you know, a couple of sessions. And the students were they, the students just loved it. Yeah, yeah. And they really wanted to work, work it, work with it on an ongoing basis, and and to think it through uh, for what it meant for their research, being from other places than Australia. What might it mean for the ways in which they understand their their studies? The difficulty for them was that they had been inducted into precisely the problems that um, Asia's method was trying to challenge. So the first step was how do you how do you deconstruct the ways in which they've been um, they've been produced as scholars yeah, yeah. to understand West as best and all of that stuff. So I, I got really interested in that, and at the same time, when we were doing our big study on elite schools, uh, look, thinking about which was elite schools in former British colonies in a number of different countries, I got really interested in how we understand earlier stages of globalisation through colonialism and then how those colonial legacies live on in different ways in different places and what are the commonalities between these different places 
and also what are the what are the differences and so that those sort of two themes have have guided me a lot and and spoken to the ways in which I currently think about intersectionality as well mm. but one of the things that I have wanted to make sure I do is be thinking about those things in relation to capitalism yeah yeah and and how capitalism is inflected in different ways in different places and what the implications of that are for education and educating. So we've kind of rehearsed how theory, theory can help yes. you ask those questions. Yeah. What about methods, actually empirical methods? Yes. I mean, how do you investigate how capitalism yeah. is manifesting <laughs> in, in yes. a school or a university? <laughs> yes. Um, I identify as an educational sociologist mm. and my method that I claim is ethnography. And so I'm a... I'm a Sociology of education, who by and large understands herself as a, as an ethnographer, yeah. but not ethnography as usual. So, um, so that's the first point. And one of the things I've sought to do is put as uh, the sort of sacred tropes of ethnography under pressure to be thinking about how can we we rework notions of time and place and movement um, in in contemporary circumstances, not even just contemporary circumstances, but longer term circumstances. Yeah, yeah that aren't governed by methodological nationalism, that persuade us to try to just think within the nation state. And um, so methodologic, methodologically, I've sort of brought those um, those ways of thinking to the table. Yeah, yeah. And my techniques are almost invariably qualitative and, um, you know, hanging out, you know, hanging out in spaces, being there, not just interviewing, but watching and listening and, and trying to read locations and places through their histories and through their through where they are, mm. not just as say a school, but a school in a location. Like in our in our um, elite schools project, we had schools in different countries. Say in Cape Town, we read that school in the context of Cape Town, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. context of apartheid. So you've got to be constantly curious yeah. and you've got to be able to spend a lot of time to do that. So, yes. I mean, from a practical point of yeah. view, say from a PhD student listening yes. to this, mm. how do you do that kind of rich yeah. but robust work? Yes. Have you got any kind of tips or yeah. things you've learned over the years? I think it is very difficult for current PhD students because they're encouraged to um, to rush their thinking. Yeah, yeah. And to not – Stephen Chemis had a great concept that I love, which is um, – grazing in the groves of academe. <laughs> and, you know, when I was doing my PhD, we could do that. Yeah, we yeah. hung out at the library forever. We read, we debated, we engaged, we critiqued each other's work. And so my first advice to graduate students would be to be reading intensely, talking with other people intensely, critically talking with each other about their work. And about other people's work as yes, well. Yes, about their work and each other's work and other people and the big thinkers' works and the not-so-big thinkers' work yeah. uh, so that so that they everything they do is richly conceptualised. And so they, when they go into a space for however long, I mean, um, they don't just think, oh, I'm going to, I've got an observation shed and I'll sit up the back of the class and I'll tick some boxes. Mm. Or they don't turn it into just a technical exercise of observation. What that rich reading and thinking enables people to do is go into a space and read an image through its history, through theorise that image in ways that if you're going in without that reading, 
you just say, oh, okay, there's a picture. What does it tell me? Well, yeah. the, you know, it's there and I'll read it in a in a sort of realist way. Yeah, in a literal way. You have to kind of exercise yeah. your brain and get yourself yeah. up to speed. Absolutely. Now, all of that sounds fantastic, but you need <laughs> yes. a, a wonderful environment in which to flourish. Yeah. I just got yes. I had a final question in terms of your long career. You've worked yes. in lots of different faculties, lots yes. of different departments. Yeah. Looking back, was there mm. one kind of space or time yes. where you could do what you've just described? Was a kind of yeah. halcyon period, a halcyon... Mm. Department. Mm. Well, there's two. Um, I did my PhD at Murdoch and um, we had a, a set of people there who were terrific, including a, a set of graduate students. A number of the people at Murdoch went on to be very significant um, scholars and educators in other parts of Australia. So I was extremely fortunate to be doing a PhD in a place like that where all this sort of work was encouraged. And then I got my first job at Deakin and it was similar. I mean, as an example, when you first arrived, and I just arrived as a lecturer, you were invited, you were to run a conference <laughs> <laughs> and and you were supported to do that financially. Yeah, 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 yeah. So both Jewel Blackmore and I ran the first, um, ran a big conference on uh, gender, I forget what it was called, gender and education. And we had people flying in from all over the place, you know, books came out of it, et cetera. Now we were just lecturers. But the community there was very intellectually, um, not just engaged, but disputatious. Mm. <laughs> so it was a feisty environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was fantastic because it was hugely generative. And at the same time, I think for people who, who might have felt more vulnerable, it may have not been yeah, as yeah. E easy an environment to be in as it was for some of us who you know, were born feisty or at least raised feisty. But I can, I was trying to think, are there things from, say, Murdoch or Deakin that we yes. could trans, we could learn from? Yeah. So I guess perhaps yes. maybe not being so disputatious, mm. is it? But I mean, that trust seemed to be something you were just talking yes. about. Like you were trusted to run a conference. Yeah. I mean, are there other things oh, that yeah. we might want to re, <laughs> re import back into today's faculties of education? The trust was considerable and people were employed on the basis of their, the intellectual projects that they brought to the table. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't about reproducing itself. So it wasn't about I'm employing all my own PhD students and I'm going to, <laughs> and we're going to keep reproducing ourselves down the generation. It wasn't that sort of place. It was the place that trusted people because the selection processes were, were very rigorous, transparent, and they wanted to have the best possible people to come into that space and enrich it. Yeah. yeah. It had the benefit of having a publishing arm that um, was attached to the Open University, which universities don't have now. Mm. Uh, but it also had, it also dispersed money to groups of teaching and research groups that were, both those things were tightly integrated. So when we were developing materials for, the, say, the gender and education course, this wasn't just about, you know, we're going to, you know, 10 steps to a gender inclusive school or something. This was about... Um, producing materials, inviting people to come in and write materials for us and with us, but also producing materials that were cutting edge. Yeah, I've seen some of those books. Yeah, yeah they were very impressive. Yes, absolutely. But the culture supported research, absolutely. And you were totally encouraged to constantly get together, work, talk about your research, share your research, um, be in other places where your research um, could be shared. Well, I mean, yes. looking forwards rather than backwards, just to <laughs> yes. finish off with, I mean, where do you see yeah. the future of education research heading? What words of encouragement would you have for early career researchers of 2019? I encourage my students to be develop a defiant research imagination, to not be timid, 
to ask hard questions, to try to answer them, and to be bold in the ways in which they think and act in, in, their research, in the research space. So, um, yeah, that's my answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of time to do timid research after the PhD. The PhD is <laughs> the one chance you get to do what you want. Absolutely. And it is a total, if you look at it, it is an unbelievable privilege yeah. to have the opportunity to do a PhD, especially if you're doing it full time and especially if you're on a scholarship. Yeah, it's a luxury. It's a luxury and it's a joy. I know a number of people find it stressful, but at the same time, if supervisors and students can be encouraged to see it as an as a joy and a privilege and one they will not have for much of the rest of their life yeah. unless they get fellowships and things, you know, uh, to you know, spend full time on their research. Well, on that joyful note, <laughs> thanks very much, Jay. It's been great to have a little bit of time to speak with you. It's generally yeah, been pleasure. good. I mean, I know a lot of people have gained from a lot from your work over the years and I still are. So thanks a lot. <laughs>